The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter four, verse 32, through chapter five, verse 16. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they all were healed. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. And uh, whenever we have a long scripture meet- reading, I always feel like I have to re- justify it, uh, remind you why we stay standing for the scripture reading. Uh, that was a long time to stand. Um, but it's to separate God's word from my word. Uh, and God really does work through preaching. We believe that, but only so long as it is aligned with his word. Uh, I could make a mistake up here while I'm speaking. I might need to come back in a future week and say, I repent of something I said. I was wrong about that. Uh, but God's word is for sure true and accurate. And so we show it its proper honor by standing during it. And uh, yeah, thank you for for doing that for such a long reading. And as you can see, we're finally back in the book of Acts. And our Acts sermon series, which is called The World Turned Upside Down, uh, that comes from Acts chapter 17. Uh, People are complaining about Christians who had come to town. And in their complaining, they say, these Christians have turned the world upside down by saying that there's another king besides Caesar, Jesus. 
And that message that Jesus is the true king has been turning the world upside down ever since. And just to recap real quickly where we have been so far in Acts, since it has been a few weeks, um, Jesus has ascended up to heaven. He has sent his Holy Spirit down upon the church. The apostles have begun to bear witness to Jesus. A new kind of community has begun to form called the church, and they're experiencing wonders and signs and mighty acts of God, which all point to the reality that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at the story of a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, which is a sort of difficult story to swallow. It seems almost out of place in the New Testament. You know, God striking two people down dead in judgment, you know, maybe in the Old Testament, but in the New, you know, some pastors and and churches may even skip this passage because it's so unpleasant. We'd rather not think about it. We'd rather not deal with it. But we are going to look at this story of God striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. And as we do so, we'll have three points, sharing, lying, and refining. And so let's begin with our first point, sharing. A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and I had some friends over. They, They visited us from out of town, and they have a son who is near our daughter's age. And so it was a good opportunity for us as parents to begin teaching our children how to share. And we learned that their son is a lot better at sharing than our daughter. Now, our daughter is good at some aspects of sharing. She's good at trading. You know, you can take my toy if I can take your toy. She's also good at just taking. You know, I take your toy. She's really good at that one. But she's not so good at giving. You know, you take my toy. You know, when she gives her toy, she expects to either immediately receive a new toy or to quickly receive back the toy that she gave. And so, you know, we're still working on this whole sharing thing. The early church, as described in the book of Acts, was characterized by sharing. They shared freely and often. In fact, the reason that the story of Ananias and Sapphira is placed in Acts is because it serves as a counterexample. It's an exception. You know, Ananias and Sapphira's greed and dishonesty are unlike the rest of the church. And for the most part, the church was characterized by unity and sharing. Chapter 4, verse 32 says, They were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed as any had need. In verses 36 and 37, even give a specific example, Barnabas, who like so many others, sold a field that belonged to him, gave the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to those in need. And so Ananias and Sapphira are actually exceptions to the norm. You know, generally, the early Christians were not greedy. They were generous. They weren't selfish. They were sacrificial. And I like that the way that verse 32 says it. It really threads the needle. No one said that the things that belonged to him was his own. You see the, the tightrope that this is walking? No one said that the things that belonged to him, so things really did belong to people, but no one said that the things that belonged to him was his own which is just another way of saying belong to him. It's basically saying no one said that the things that belong to him belong to him. And this kind of reminds me of Philippians 2, verse 6. 
Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In a kind of similar way, things really belonged to people, but they didn't act as if they belonged to them. You know, they had this demeanor that was sort of like, they're mine, but they're not mine. They're mine, but they're ours. They're mine, but they're yours. And so the early church was characterized by sharing. And because they were characterized by sharing, verse 34 says that there was not a needy person among them. There were no needy people. Can you imagine that? No needy people. They're living in a major city, Jerusalem, and there are no needy people among the Christians there. And this is actually a callback to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.4 has instructions that God is giving to the Israelites as they're forming their nation for the first time. And it says in Deuteronomy 15.4, there should be no poor among them. And so God told Israel that there should be no poor among them. And here in the New Testament era, when the church is forming, the testimony of Acts is that God's command in Deuteronomy is being fulfilled. There's no poor among them. There's no needy people. That's God's vision and hope for the church community, that there would be no needy people among them because everyone was so willing to share. But what did that look like? You know, what did it take? What did all this sharing require of the community? Was it just automatic? Or uh, did, did the church just sit in a circle at sunset like a bunch of hippies holding hands, singing kumbaya? Not exactly. The sharing happened through voluntary, sacrificial generosity. Voluntary, sacrificial generosity. And so let me, let me break each of these down. Um, it might not be immediately clear, trying to parse through all the words and parts of speech, but what is being described in verses 34 and 35 about selling land and houses and bringing money to the apostles to distribute uh, is voluntary. They don't have to do it. Not everyone did it. Uh, it was primarily the middle and upper class Christians, those who actually owned land and, and uh, houses that they could sell, which not everyone did. And it wasn't constant. It was as any had need. There were times when someone was in need and there were times when no one was. And we also know that it was voluntary from what Peter tells Ananias later. And we're getting a little ahead in the passage, but later Peter tells Ananias in chapter 5, verse 4, While the property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And the Greek grammar to English grammar translation might not make this perfectly clear, but both of those questions anticipate positive responses. And so what Peter is saying to Ananias is, you didn't have to sell that property, right? It was yours. And once you did sell it, you didn't have to give all the proceeds or any of the proceeds. They were at your disposal, The selling of property and giving of the proceeds was voluntary. But for those who did volunteer to do so, it was sacrificial. It disrupted their lives. They went from having land to not having land. They went from having a house to not having a house. You know, that land can't make them money anymore. That house can't be their house anymore. They need to find somewhere else to live. They need to move in with other family or become renters again or whatever. It was costly to meet the needs this way. You know, I mean, imagine giving up the equity in your mortgage. You know, you have to start all over with a 30-year loan or whatever. You know, I bet that didn't even cross your mind as something you could do to meet someone else's need. It didn't cross my mind, mainly because I'm a renter, but you get my point. It would be tremendously sacrificial to do something like that. 
that's how the church was sacrificing to meet needs when it got started. It was voluntary, it was sacrificial, and it was also generous. The early church was generous. They saw others in need and had compassion on them. They wanted to eliminate the needs of others. They loved their neighbors. You you want to know what it means to love your neighbor? It's to see your neighbor's needs and do something to meet those needs so that none of your neighbors are needy anymore. That's neighbor love. That's generosity. Voluntary, sacrificial generosity. And of course, this all flows from Jesus's voluntary, sacrificial generosity. Jesus willingly gave everything to meet your needs, right? You were Jesus's needy neighbor. He looked at you, had compassion on you, and voluntarily gave up everything, gave up his life, sacrificed himself to meet your needs, your eternal debt against God. So this Christian community isn't just doing nice things randomly. They're doing it because they've been the recipients of voluntary sacrificial generosity from Jesus. And so they get it. They understand just how needy they were and how sacrificial and generous Jesus was to them. And so selling houses or land is nothing. Jesus is what enabled this voluntary sacrificial generosity. Now, one word out of those three uh, we like a lot more than the other two. You know which word we like more than the other two? Voluntary. We love that this is voluntary. It's not mandatory sacrificial generosity, it's voluntary sacrificial generosity, which means you don't have to do it. It's voluntary. But I want to submit that this actually makes things harder for us in a way. Do you see how? Well, here's what I mean. If this kind of sacrificial generosity were mandatory, if God said, you have to sell 50% and give it away, or you know, whatever amount, you know, sure, that would be costly, but it would be a done deal. You wouldn't have to discern anything. You'd just do it. Rip the Band-Aid off, sell half your stuff, give the proceeds to the poor, and then move on. You're done. No more thinking about it. But the fact that this is voluntary means that you actually have to wrestle over this. You actually have to ask yourself, you have to also ask God, how much? And after you come up with an answer for how much, you have to answer why that's how much. You you actually have to steward what God has given you. You have to wrestle over this. And look, if your instinct is to breathe a sigh of relief that generosity is voluntary, that's a diagnostic. Why was that so relieving? Why are we so interested in how little we have to give You know, the gospel, Jesus' generosity actually should flip the question around. It should flip it on its head. Not how little do I have to give, but how much can I give? You know, how should I steward what God has given me? And so how is your stewardship? How is your sharing? How is your voluntary, sacrificial generosity? What would you be willing to give up? to meet someone else's needs, or maybe a better question, what wouldn't you be willing to give up to meet someone else's needs? How does what you might possibly give up compare to what Jesus gave up to meet your needs? Or more practically, what needs have you noticed in the lives of those around you? What might voluntary sacrificial generosity look like specifically for you? Not theoretically, but really, practically, in reality. These are questions that you have to answer for yourself with God as your witness. You know, how might he be calling you to meet the needs of people around you and what might you have to sacrifice 
to do so. The early church, because of their understanding of what Jesus had done for them, was so sacrificially generous that there were no needy people among them. Or at least most of them were sacrificially generous. And that takes us to our second point, lying. In the television show Mad Men, the main character is a man named Don Draper who is an executive at an advertising firm in New York, six, New York City in the 60s. And Don is successful, he's powerful, he's sophisticated, he's decisive, he's confident, he's good-looking, he dresses well. Lots of people probably wish that they were him. In fact, even he wishes that he were him because it turns out that Don Draper isn't even really Don Draper. His real name is Dick Whitman. Don Draper is an identity that Dick Whitman stole from a soldier who died beside him during the war. And it's an identity that he's been clinging to because he doesn't want anyone to know who he really is. He himself even doesn't want to face who he really is. And so as Don Draper, he lives his life lying to everyone, even lying to himself. In our passage, Ananias and Sapphira want to stand out in the Christian community. They want to appear better than they really are. They see all these others voluntarily selling property and giving the proceeds, and they want to be seen as doing the same without actually having to do the same. And so what do they do? They lie. They lie about what they've done, and they lie about who they really are. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 say, But a man, Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you see what's happening here? They really did sell a piece of property, and they had money they received from that sale, and then they took some of the money, kept it for themselves, and brought the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet, And the text doesn't really get into the detail about what was said or not said, but in verse 3, Peter says to Ananias that he has lied to the Holy Spirit. And so it seems that Ananias, when he brought the money, intended to deceive the community and the apostles in, in some way or another, either by what he said or what he didn't say. But he wanted them to believe that the money was the full amount that they made on the sale, when in fact it was only a partial amount. And so at the most basic level, it seems pretty likely that Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of greed and selfishness. They likely could have given the whole amount, but they chose to keep some for themselves. But it actually goes deeper than that. You know, as I mentioned in the previous point, Peter says in verse 4 that they didn't have to sell the land. They didn't have to give all the money. And so it seems here like the main problem isn't their lack of generosity per se. It's not irrelevant, but that's not their main problem. Their main problem is they're lying. You know, Peter twice tells Ananias that he has lied. Verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 5, you have not lied to man, but to God. And Ananias lies with his wife's knowledge, as verse 1 makes clear. And so she's complicit, too. They clearly conspired ahead of time to deceive by presenting a portion of the proceeds as if it were the full amount. And then later on, Sapphira herself also lies. 
She doesn't know that Ananias has been caught in his lie already and died for it, which we'll get to later. But Sapphira comes to Peter, and he asks her if they sold the land for the amount that Ananias said, and she says, yes, that's how much we sold it for. And so she's already guilty of conspiring with Ananias, but now she's especially guilty because she lies to Peter's face. And so, again, even deeper than the greed and the selfishness is the lying, the dishonesty. But it actually goes even deeper than the lying. And to see how it goes deeper, we have to ask the question, why? Why did they lie? Because, you know, it's interesting. Ananias and Sapphira must have still given a lot of money I mean, you can't really make a big sale of property and then donate like half of it and try to pass it off as the whole amount. I mean, if you sold your house in Fremont and brought the money to church to donate and you showed up with $500,000, that's a big amount, but we all know that houses sell for a lot more than that here. And so you'd have to be much closer to the true amount to have any chance of deceiving people into believing you were giving the full amount. And so something odd is going on here. Ananias and Sapphira probably still brought a big sum of money, big enough that it would seem generous, big enough that it would seem reasonable that that's what they got for selling the land, and yet they still lie about it. Why? Why would they lie? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why anyone would lie, but in this situation for Ananias and Sapphira, why did they lie? Why didn't they just say, hey, this is 75% of the proceeds or whatever number? Why did they lie about it being the full amount? It seems like they must have lied because in their minds, there was some sort of system for ranking the members of the church. And if you sold property and gave 100% of the proceeds, then you were ranked at the top. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be ranked at the top. They wanted the reputation of someone who gives 100% without actually having to give 100%. And so somehow, some way, being seen as someone who gives 100% was an idol for them. It was a functional savior. It's what Ananias and Sapphira thought they needed to really make it in this new community. They needed to be seen as better than they were, which is a fundamental misunderstanding, denial even, of the gospel. You know, the gospel is that you are seen for how you really are, not how you wish you were, but how you really are. The gospel is that you are seen for how impure and unclean and sinful and ungenerous you are, but loved by God anyway. I mean, look, Ananias and Sapphira did a terrible, wicked thing, but it's also heartbreaking because in some way or another, they don't understand God's love. Either they think that God's love is worth less than the love of humans, or they think that God's love is so limited and conditional that they need to lie and compete in order to get it. I think it's more likely that second one. You know, Peter tells them that their primary lie is against God, which is about the dumbest thing you could do, but also the saddest. You know, somehow in their minds, Ananias and Sapphira thought that if they could just trick God into seeing them as people who give 100%, then he would really love them. They don't understand that their standing before God would not change one bit if they gave zero or a hundred. They don't believe that God loves them. And so they lie to the church, to the apostles, even to God. They lie. They want the credit and the honor of giving 100% without having to give 100%. They don't believe that God is all they need and that they already have him. And so they're trying to get more and they're perverting generosity into something that isn't about other people's needs, but their own needs. 
from their need to be respected, to be viewed highly, to have a good reputation. They're using generosity to meet their own needs, which I don't have to tell you is the opposite of what generosity is. And so Ananias and Sapphira lie. But what about you? When have you lied to others? When have you lied to yourself? When have you even lied to God? When are you most tempted to lie? Who are you most tempted to lie to? And what do you suppose that lying will do for you in God's sight? You know, I'm sure there are all sorts of big and horrible lies that we could talk about, but what about the so-called small stuff? What about the day-to-day white lies that we tell? You know, what text messages have you sent recently that were lies? You know, on my way, we actually haven't left the house yet, but you want to be perceived as someone who leaves on time without actually having to be someone who leaves on time. Why? Praying for you when you haven't been praying for them, but you want to be perceived as someone who prays without ceasing, without actually having to pray. Why? Sorry, I just saw your message when you actually saw it the moment they sent it because you're constantly on your phone, but you want to be perceived as someone who doesn't check their text constantly, or you want to be perceived as someone who would have acted if only they had seen the text sooner. Why? You ever find yourself sending texts like these? They may seem small, but they are lies, and underlying them is something that is anything but small. Lying is doing something for you that probably runs contrary to the gospel you profess to believe. You know, these lies show that you fear man more than God, or uh, they may trick you into believing that you're actually a good person who God should love, rather than accepting that you're not a good person, you're a sinner, but God loves anyway because he's gracious and merciful. But what is lying doing for you? Do you realize you're lying to God? You know, unless you have an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance, when you lie to others, you're lying to God because he's right there. He sees what you're doing. He hears what you're saying. He's so transcendent, so closely associated with the truth, but also so closely associated with your neighbors whom he loves that when you lie to them, he says you're lying essentially to him. Do you realize that you're lying to God? It's not something that he takes lightly. That takes us to our final point, refining. You know, the metal, gold, doesn't exist in its purest form in nature. And so in order to obtain gold for jewelry or whatever, you have to put it through a refining process. And this process has evolved throughout history, but one of the oldest methods to refined gold is to use heat. And essentially what you do is you heat up the gold to such a high temperature that it melts, and when the gold is melted, the impurities and other substance that keep it from being pure gold will float to the surface. And all these impurities, all these non-gold bits and pieces can be scraped out or plucked out, leaving behind just the pure gold. That's what it means to refine, to remove the impurities and leave behind just the pure substance. One of the most difficult aspects of this passage is the punishment for Ananias and Sapphira's lying. God kills them. 
He kills them for lying. Verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. God kills them for lying. He judges them for lying. Why? Why such a harsh punishment? Why did God need to kill them? And there's a lot that could be said. It's a multifaceted issue, but it all ultimately has to do with God's work of refining the church, of removing impurities and leaving behind just the pure substance. It, it all flows from God's refining work. But before I get into the specifics of that and why, let me say two things. First, we should challenge the assumption that underlies even asking the question, why did God kill them? The real question is not why, does God, why did God kill them? The real question is why doesn't God immediately kill everyone the moment we sin against him? That's what our sin deserves, right? The real question isn't why does God judge here? The real question is why doesn't God judge constantly? Why does God show grace and mercy ever? Why does God let us live? Well, he lets us live because... Again, God is interested in refining us. He wants us to die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. And so he doesn't normally kill us the moment we sin because he loves us and he wants us to have time to be refined and sanctified. But that's a grace. You know, that's a mercy. Don't forget that. God does not have to do that. God chooses to do that. God wants to do that. But God is not in our debt. You know, any extra time for refining, for sanctification is his grace and mercy toward us. Uh, Second, what's interesting is that you might think that this judgment would turn people off from the church. I mean, it's not exactly seeker-friendly, right? Like, hey, welcome to our church. Just a heads up, about halfway through the worship service, God is going to kill some liars, right? You know, that stuff makes us almost embarrassed of our God and of our faith, And so we think that this will stop the church from growing, but just the opposite actually happens in Acts. The church keeps growing after Ananias and Sapphira's judgment. And verses 12 through 16, we see that more signs and wonders continue to be done. The church is held in high esteem by others in their city. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. I mean, not everyone, of course. There are some who do not dare join. But still, multitudes of both men and women are added to the church's number. And so this refining act of the Lord doesn't seem to hinder the church's ministry or growth one bit. If anything, it helps it. And I mean, if you think about it, wouldn't joining a community that's committed to truthfulness be a breath of fresh air in a world where lying is so normalized? But all I have to say... Why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? I think there are a couple of reasons. And first, this is a crucial moment in the church's development. It's the very beginning. And cultures are set in the very beginning. Habits are formed in the very beginning. How the church starts off will have ramifications for how it continues for years and years and decades and centuries and millennia. And so from the very beginning, God is making it clear that lying and hypocrisy will not be what characterizes his church. Fearing man more than God will not be what characterizes the church. Depending on our works over God's grace will not characterize the church. And so generations of Christians that follow will hear of Ananias and Sapphira, and it will serve as a warning to them. 
the story will pop into their minds when they're thinking about lying to their fellow Christians or to God. It will remind them that they're loved by God and that they don't have to lie uh, to stay loved by God. God loves them regardless of their good works. They don't need to pretend to be more holy or more righteous or more generous than they really are. And in fact, Knowing that God loves you, no matter your performance, is actually what will motivate you best, compel you the most to be generous to meet other people's needs. You know, once you realize that God has met every need you have ever had or will ever have, it frees you up to actually be as generous as you could be. And so Ananias and Sapphira's story is meant to refine the church from generation to generation to make them more and more honest, more and more generous, ultimately more and more sure of God's love for them. And then second, God kills them because he cares about the rest of the church. And this might not immediately click for you, you know, mostly because we're so individualistic. When we read a story like this, we put ourselves in Ananias and Sapphira's shoes. But what about the rest of the church? What about the rest of the community they belong to? The reality is that Ananias and Sapphira were a threat to the Christian community. They were a cancer growing in the church. And when you have a tumor, you surgically remove it. If you let that tumor grow, if you let an infected wound fester, it can kill the whole body. And God loves the body of Christ too much to let that happen. He does not intend to let the body be destroyed. He intends to refine it, to purify it, to glorify it. There's a story in Leviticus chapter 10 about two priests Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews, and they're priests, and they make an offering in an unauthorized way. Uh, They make an offering differently than how God had commanded them to make offerings, and what does God do? Instead of consuming the offering with fire, he consumes Nadab and Abihu with fire. He kills them. And why does he do this? Is he just vindictive? Is he a loose cannon? No, he does it because he cares about the nation of Israel. And if the nation of Israel's priests are offering sacrifices in an unworthy way, in an unauthorized way, then they're not serving the people. They're not loving the people. Israel's mediators are failing them, and their actions, should they be tolerated, are teaching the nation that it's okay to take God's commands and rules and statutes lightly. Nadab and Abihu are a cancer to the priesthood. They are a tumor that needs to be removed. They think that they can offer sacrifices in any way that makes sense to them rather than how God has asked. But that's actually putting the rest of the nation in danger, and God will not have that. God loves his people too much to let these priests put Israel's relationship with him at risk. And so he consumes them with fire. And what does fire do? What does heat do? It refines. It makes pure what's impure. And so as with Nadab and Abihu, so with Ananias and Sapphira, God is refining his people. He's refining the church. He's refining you. And you know, thankfully, the refining act of killing Ananias and Sapphira seems to be rare in this era of redemptive history. Instead of killing you, typically God uses means of grace to kill sin in you. His grace is what motivates your refinement. He would have every right to kill you like Ananias and Sapphira, but he hasn't. He's been merciful toward you. 
Doesn't that make you want to leave behind more and more your sinful nature and live more and more unto righteousness? And so what needs to be refined in you? What in your life needs to drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira? What in your life needs to be consumed like Nadab and Abihu by God's refining fire? What needs to be put down at the feet of Jesus so he can destroy it? So that you can be cleansed, so that you can be purified, so that you can be glorified. You know, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, unlike you and me, Jesus always tells the truth. And thank God he does, because otherwise we wouldn't know the gospel. We wouldn't know that the kingdom of God is at hand. We wouldn't know to repent. But Jesus always tells the truth, and yet, just like Ananias and Sapphira both breathed their last, Jesus also breathed his last. Luke 23 from Good Friday, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Ananias and Sapphira only gave a portion of their proceeds. Jesus gave up 100% for your sake. Jesus paid it all. Nadab and Abihu made an unauthorized offering. Jesus offered up himself a perfect offering. Jesus was consumed so we wouldn't have to be. Jesus breathed his last. Jesus was consumed that you and me, so that you and me never will be. If you're in Christ, then his death and resurrection guarantees you'll never truly breathe your last. And if you're in Christ, then his death and resurrection guarantees that your soul won't be consumed in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, as Jesus calls it. Jesus intends to refine you and refine you and refine you and refine you until the end of the age when he raises you up and you are perfect. You are pure. You are glorified. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Jesus began a refining work in you. He intends to complete it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are a God committed to our refinement as individuals and committed to our refinement as a corporate body. Father, we confess all the ways we are hesitant to share. We confess all the times we are tempted to lie, give in to lying. We confess that lying does things for us that run contrary to the gospel. It does things for us that only you can truly do for us. So, Father, we ask that you would forgive us for these things. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray.